Hello everyone and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast, where we chat everything and anything related to the world of music and occasionally focus on topics a little bit unrelated. My name is Scott Cowie, I am a drummer turned comedy singer-songwriter and apparently now a podcaster. You're going to hear me chat to many different people, but more often than not, it will be fellow musicians having conversations about their careers and lives within, arguably, the greatest art form in the world. And you get this for free each and every week on scottcowie.com, on Stitcher Radio, and now on iTunes. So please rate, review, subscribe, tell a friend, let them know what's going on over here. But for now, enjoy the show. Guest this week on the podcast, legendary bass player Norman Watt Roy. Perhaps most famous for his time in Ian Jury and the Blockheads, but he's also played with Roger Daltrey amongst many others. A fantastic interview coming up. Now, before we go any further, I'm joined by my very good friend, Mike Smith. How are you, Mike? I'm all right. How are you, mate? You know me, Mike. I can't complain and never do. However... Last week, as you all know, if anybody checked it out, we had episode number 41, in which I interviewed two agents from the FBI. Now, I have a bit of a confession to make. I feel extremely guilty because Mike was kind enough to record a theme song that I wanted played on the podcast. Uh, Mike, do you want to explain a bit about this? (laughs) Well, I got the text message about eight in the morning. He said he was... You were interviewing an FBI agent, and would I do the uh, theme tune for Beverly Hills Cop? And so I immediately thought, well, I'll I'll get my kind of gear out, get my saxophones out, and I'll do a saxophone quartet arrangement very quickly. And sort of within half an hour, I'd come up with this sort of comedy arrangement of this, <laughs> this theme tune. And so you know, got my pajamas on, just did it, man, and sent it over. And it was it was you know it was it was all right, but um, the Americans didn't like it, did they, mate? Um, well, the thing is, we're, we're going to let you guys hear it because you didn't get an opportunity to hear it last week. Here it is just now, and I'm going to explain exactly what happened. Now, this was supposed to be on the show last week. Here we go. Mike's arrangement of Beverly Hills Cop, um, the, the sax quartet version. Now, it's really cool, okay, but let me, I'll explain the whole process. I called up, I called up the FBI um, and I said, hey, my name's Scott from Scotland, I run a music podcast, and it took a lot of convincing for them to think that it would be a good idea for their agents to be interviewed on my music podcast, okay? So (laughs) I eventually got them persuaded to do such a thing. I interviewed them, and then when they got the podcast over and the opening theme was the Beverly Hills Cop theme, I think they then thought, listen, the interview was okay, but can you just take out that comedy theme at the start when you're doing the Beverly Hills Cop? It doesn't exactly paint us in the best light. So I should be offended, shouldn't I? Really? Yeah, I think they were slightly <laughs> on it. I think you're taking the proverbial you-know-what. So Maybe. there you have it. The FBI didn't want Mike's theme, so the FBI hate Mike Smith. <laughs> well, you know... For this, yeah. <laughs> I think they do, and they hate, well, they, regardless, you didn't get to hear it last week, so, so there it is, and it's a shame oh. because it's beautiful, how good is this? Yeah. 
It's great. It's beautiful. Well, there we go. You know, I mean, as long as they don't investigate me, I'm all right. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think you're on the, the most wanted list for that, Mike. We're all good. But listen, okay. we have got a gig coming up. Do you want to tell, tell the listeners all about it? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we're down in London in the Half Moon Club, historical venue, with uh, Sandy Tom. And we're playing the, uh, where is it, the 20th? Is it 20th the of November? The 20th of November, the Half Moon in London. Yeah. Um, tickets are priced at, well, I'm not entirely sure. It's a bargain at double price, whatever it may be. More information <laughs> on sandytom.com. Of course, it's Sandy's DVD launch, which I've yeah. got to say, I've seen some of the DVD. Mike, you look amazing in this DVD. You look um, beautiful. Well, thank you very much. They made me wear a kilt. And I was, uh, it's just a fraud in the whole thing, really, because I was the only guy that wasn't a Scot, but I was the only guy that was ginger. So uh, I got away with it on those terms, but that was about it, really. Yeah, I've never worn a kilt before, and it's bloody cold up in Aberdeen, I've got to say. Anyway, there yeah, we listen, go. Listen, it's cold, it's cold anywhere in Scotland, mate. You should, you should know that by now. But the 20th of November, the weather should be slightly better because we are south of the border. We're playing in London. The Halfman, get yourself down there. It's going to be absolutely brilliant. Mike will be on the stage. I'll be on the stage. Sandy Tom will be on the stage. But we won't be playing that Beverly Hills Cop theme, but we'll be playing a lot of good tunes. And nonetheless, you're going to see me and Mike there. And now we're going to get to the next stage of this podcast, my good old friend, Gary John Kane. We're going to talk about the Blockheads. We're going to talk about Norman Watt Roy. And we're going to talk to the man himself in a little bit. It's going to be a good one. This is going to be great. I'm back right now with Gary John. How are you, sir? Hello, Scott. How are you doing? You know me, I can't complain, never do, especially when we're on a podcast with Norman Portroy. How exciting is that? Right, one of the best, the best bass players in the world. In fact, that's your second good bass player you've interviewed recently. Right, who was the other one? Maybe Carol Kay. Carol Kay, yes. The audio, we did Carol interview on the audio podcast and coming up very shortly on scottcowie.com, keep checking back because I did a video interview with her when I was over in Los Angeles. So I heard about it. Uh, you are a massive fan of Carol. You're a massive fan of Norman Watt Roy. What bass lines do you like? From Norman Watt Roy, well, there isn't really a bad blockhead bass line, but I suppose the ones that stand out would be uh, What a Waste and obviously Hit Me With Your Rimstick. It's just, it's still, I still can't play them. I've tried my best. I don't know how he does it, but he, he does it in a four string. I think it's a Fender Jazz he plays. And uh, stunning. But he also did a lot of covers. A session work, I should say. One of my favourite bands when I was younger was The Selector, it was a two tone band. And he played a bass line in a song called uh, Celebrate the Bullet, which is, if you ever get a chance to hear it, it's stunning. 1981 or something, showing my age, but it's a stunning bass line. So just, just influential, plays with his fingers, plays with his heart, plays with his soul, and he's a funky, funky man, you know. Brilliant. I spoke to a guy called Ed McFarlane yesterday. Good bass player too. Great, aye. shouldn't cry. He did, yes. Um, Great it, double bass player, actually. I really, really good. Ed was saying that Norman is up there with Bernard Edwards as far as creating a bass line that really makes a song. Oh, no, without a doubt. Aye. I think I think he, if you're writing a song, if you're a songwriter, you know what it's like, a guitarist, whatever, you can play drums and all that, but when you're writing a song, if you're a good bass player, can come in and give you a, a hook or that groove, it just changes the whole dynamic of the song. It makes the drummer go, oh, right, okay, you know. It saves the drummer all the hassle of making up the rhythm if the two of them combine as well as... And what Roy does, it's just stunning. You can't beat it. Being a great bass player yourself, thanks, man. What have you got coming up? You're with the Proclaimers. You're with Button Up. What's going on? Well, ironically, I've been sitting working on the the demos. You always get the classic Proclaimers send you demos, just them and a piano or acoustic guitar. So you get to know the songs, and then we're going to do a a new album before the end of the year. Uh, record it anyway. We'll probably release it in May, I think, next year. 
So we go down to Rockfield, down in Wales, woohoo, which is the famous hub of, uh, I think that's the big Stone Roses fallout in their second album. That's where they disappeared in Rockfield. That's right. Oasis had a big fight in Rockfield. Hopefully we don't have any fights in Rockfield, but uh, it's famous for its Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody piano. It's still there that they used to record Bohemian Rhapsody. So that's everybody sits there and goes, Galileo and all that rubbish. I can't believe I'm singing Queen songs. I don't even like Queen songs. But anyway, it's a famous studio and it's lovely. And it's a lovely wee town. Monmouth and Rockfield's actual name of the village, which isn't... You'd think Rockfield have named it, but it's not. It's actually called Rockfield Farm. So, so excellent new album coming out of The Proclaimers. It hasn't got a name for the album yet, so I can't tell you the name or the end. It's just they don't do that till last minute. So It's very exciting indeed. And plus, Button Up, I think you've got a single coming out. We're recording one in, again, recording in December. It must be Christmas tonight. You get sleigh bells and songs. But um, I will get a new single coming out probably end of February called Not Interested. Now, that sounds negative, but it's not. It's a nice wee poppy. Hammondy, moddy thing that we always do, so I'm looking forward to that. So, tell us about Burn Up. Okay, it's been a project of mine since 1998, through different various lineups, through a lot of changes, but it's kind of based on, so I wanted to be a Booger T in MGs, and the first sort of records were all instrumental, but then I thought I could be a lyricist and started writing melodies, and I could thought well, that'd be nice, a vocal rather than a sax doing it, or a trumpet or a Hammond, so... I started getting singers in, and through the years I've had good ones, like, well, great ones, like Justin Curry, Delamici sang the first four songs of the first record, and a singer called Joseph Malik, who's a brilliant singer from Edinburgh. I've had Sarah Kerr, who's local here, she sang on the last two records, and really good. And um, I had an old punk mate of mine called Mark Hannaway, who was a Clash tribute singer. He got, I, got, I always wanted to record with him, so I did a classic ska song with him, and it's like, that was heaven. So, the next phase... Here we go again. So it keeps me going. It keeps me saying that button up, you know. So, and ah, insane as well, I suppose. I heard that was another guy that was the singer in Button Up at one point. Tom Urey. Well, there's a good story. We cover all artists, you know what I mean? From River City to Hydro Stars, <laughs> you know what I mean? But Tom, Tom was great. It was, a, it was a, where was it now? Corinthian in Glasgow. I think it was Corinthian. And the guy owned it. Is it Stephen King? The guy who owns all these things. Big rich guy. Um... He had Tom singing in the bar, and we were doing an instrumental on a Sunday afternoon. He says, why don't you just combine and do a... So Tom Urey did vocal. It was Tom Urey with Button Up as his backing band, so... And we did some fun... I mean, <laughs> he's a lovely guy, Tom, you know what I mean? He's a lovely guy. But we did, like... Uh, I'm sure we did Light My Fire, the Shelley Bassey version. So, I mean, you can all imagine what that was like. There's only three of us and him, so we tried our best, you know what I mean? So, and he loved his Beatles. He loved his Crowded House. That was great, and he's still a friend of mine. He still he bought the, he bought the new album, and, and he put a photograph on Facebook and showed me him holding the album. So that was quite cool. I like River City. I don't care what anybody says. Beat better than EastEnders anyway. There you go. I, I knew about that because he told me that the other day. Actually, it just sprung a sprung a mind there. Sorry for forgetting you, Tom. But these things just there was a phase at Christmas. I forgot. It was all good. It's all good. Okay, so on the Talk Music podcast this week, absolute pleasure to be talking to the man, the myth, the legend, Norman Watt Roy. Let's get right down to it. It's going to be a good one. Okay, I am back on the Talk Music Podcast with Mr. Norman Watt-Roy. How are you, Norman? I'm very well, thanks, Scott. Yeah, great. Now, well, we just had a quick chat off the air about the fact that you, not only do you know Scotland really well, but you actually know Airdrie, where I'm from. I, I, yeah, I, I think I passed through there a few times. Right, so where have you played in Scotland then? Have you been all over? Oh, God, I've done the O2 many times on Socky All Street. But, you know, if you really want to know, when I was only a boy, when me and my brother, the first time I ever went to Scotland, we played 
the Elizabethan, right? Which was on Sucky Hill Street, the the Maryland Ballroom, yeah. Which was on Sucky Hill Street, you know, and that was like a big deal for us. It took us two days to get up there, you know, in those <laughs> days. This was back in the early um, early seventy, late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, when I was nineteen, I met my my wife of thirty eight years, and we, you know, she was from Govan, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, we need to get you back up and get you playing again because you've got a lot of solo gigs coming up, Norman. What, yeah. what's, what's in that set? What can we expect to hear? Uh, well, basically, you know, you hear my album, Faith and Grace. I don't know if you've got a copy of that. I've been listening, yeah. You hear basically that as well as some Blockhead material and some Wilco Johnson material because they... Okay, let me explain. You see, I never set out to do a solo thing. I've never, uh, you know, I'm a bass player. I've worked with Ian and Wilco and everyone. But a couple of years ago, I, um, well, a few, a long time ago, actually, six years ago, more than six years ago, um, uh, I had a, a couple of instrumental things that I, I, I write I write music, you know, I contribute with songwriters. I wrote stuff with Ian, with Wilco, with Chaz, with loads of people. But it's basically I write music. So I had some a couple of instrumentals and in the blockheads we got a saxophone player called Gilad Atzman. And he's um, uh, one of the world's best saxophone. I'm not joking, he's seriously one of the seriously one of the world's best. And he is an amazing producer as well. And um, I heard some of his stuff he'd done, and I was blown away with it. I said to him, Gilad, I've got a couple of instrumentals I just wanted to record for myself, for fun. Mm -hmm. Would you help me with it in the studio? So he said, yeah, no problem. So we went in and we did some stuff, these couple of things. And um, after it, he said, no, you gotta you gotta do some more, make a CD. He loved it so much. And I said, ah, I haven't got you know, I didn't think I had enough material. And he said, Well, we can cover some of Blockhead songs, cover Wilco. Everyone knows what you've done, Blockheads Wilco, why don't you So I thought, oh okay. Then he started saying, Well and you should sing. And I said, Well I'm not really a singer and he said, but you sing with the blockheads, you sing backing vocals with Will Go, you know, give it. People know what you do, do what you do. So I thought about it, and then my wife, Patty, was giving me encouragement as well, saying, yeah, go on, do it, do it. So between them, they got me started on my solo album. And it was all going fantastically well until suddenly she died, very suddenly. She had, uh, you know, it, was a, it wasn't. Um, like she was um, ill and she was going to die. And I had four days. I got told on a Tuesday that she was going to be dead by the weekend. And it was like a big shock. So, I mean, and it wasn't even on the cards. So it kind of took everyone by surprise. And for a couple of years after that, I shelved the album. I couldn't finish it. And I, I just, because she got me to start and then she suddenly died. So I couldn't finish it. And, um, I left it for a couple of years, sitting on the shelf, and then I met this beautiful Mexican girl who helped me. Well, for a couple of years, my best friend looked after me and was feeding me and making sure I was doing. Because I was, I was gigging with Wilco and the Blockheads, but kind of 
it weren't nothing meant anything anymore you know it was a I was in a bad place. I was very depressed, really. It was depression took over. But luckily, I met this beautiful young girl, and she helped pull me out of my misery. And between the two of them, uh, Dave, my best mate, and Lizette, we, um, they, they made me finish it. And I finished it, and, and then I had a solo album. And then I had a solo career suddenly, you know, and suddenly I had a band and whoa, and everything's taken off, you know, and it's just blown me away. But it's all going very well. I've got the best band in the world. I'm, I mean, I've got the world's greatest players playing with me. Surround yourself with great players and you just they just make you look great. <laughs> That's all I say, you know. This is all new to me. It's like I, I didn't, you know, figure on a solo album and a solo career, but it's looking good and everyone seems to love what we do and the gigs are going amazingly well and so I'm pursuing it. But right now, Wilco just announced, I was with him two days ago at the uh, Q Awards and he's just got the Icon Award and he's looking great and he's ready to do stuff. It, by next year, we'll be on the road again, so it's all looking great. Glad to hear it. Now, you mentioned that a lot of people know you from, of course, Wilco and the Blockheads, but I actually didn't know until about a week ago that you played with Roger Daltrey. Tell us about that. Oh, I, I did all Roger's solo stuff in the 80s. Ride away a horse and all the, all the kind of solo things he was doing, you know. And, um, yeah, he's a good old friend of ours. We've known him a long time. And then he, he loves Wilco and he, he wanted to make the album with Wilco. And, and But unfortunately, it was when Wilco was expecting to die. So Wilco said, well, you better do it quick, Roger, if you want to do it. And we did do it quick. We did it in one week. In, in, and, and it's done really well. But I don't know if you just heard, Wilco's just announced. He's got the all clear. He's been cured. No, it's great because I was going to be I was going to ask you, but I didn't know what the the state of play was. But that's such good news because everybody's oh, yeah. been been messaging. He, he announced me. it at the Q Awards. If, if, if you can check it out, his speeches, um, acceptance speeches on YouTube. Just put Q Awards Wilco, and you get it. And it's a brilliant speech because he tells this is basically very quickly. He tells his story and what's happened to him, and he can't believe it as well. And so, and he's looking and. and Amazing, because I, I mean, this is six months after the operation he had. Yeah. And I was with, I've been with him throughout the whole six months. I've been going to see him every week. And about three months ago, he was like a skeleton. And he was saying, I'm so weak, I don't know if I can ever do anything again. But you know what? If you see him now, he looks like his old self. He's, he's put weight on. He's feeling great. And they told him after about five or six months after the operation, He's starting to feel better. And sure enough, this is six months after the operation, and he's getting back to his old self. So he can't wait. And he's going to, he's, he's blown away that he's been cured after, I mean, he's spent a year and a half being told he was going to die, you know, or waiting for, to die. And, and then they said, hang on, we think we can cure you and save you. And they did. They've done it. And, and he's blown away. It's amazing. It's a miracle. It's an incredible story. Absolutely. We'll look forward to, to seeing that tour and make sure... You must a, check out the, um, the acceptance Awards, yeah. speech yeah. On, on Q Awards. It's brilliant. We've got a standing ovation halfway through, you know, 
it was a what a great speech. He basically tells the story of what happened, and he's like, ah, you know, I don't know, you know, thanks for this award, but you never know what's going to happen, you know. It's well, fantastic. Just make sure, well, we'll be trusting you to make sure there's a couple of Scottish dates on that tour, Norman, when you're out next oh, year, eh? for sure, yeah. yeah. He always does the O2 up there, yeah. So we'll be up there, definitely. And I have to tell you this, a little bit of an exclusive. It, hopefully, well, it looks like it's going to come together. We, we're not 100% sure, but The Who are celebrating their 50th anniversary next year. Yeah. And they're doing a world tour, and they've asked me and we'll go if we'll open the the show for them wow. on the world tour. So we said yeah. So Wilgo's got to get ready for April next year. <laughs> so he's got plenty of time, you know. And he's feeling great now. So we'll do something before then, and I'm sure we'll be on the Who tour next year. That is absolutely amazing. What a turnaround! What a turnaround! Uh, what I'm just saying. What a turnaround! It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine that? Spending a year and a half being told you're going to die and waiting to die, and then suddenly being told, "Hang on, I think we can save you," and now he's saved. It's like he can't believe it himself. Yeah, he he's gets flying. He gets that news, and before he knows it, he's getting an award at the Q Awards. He's supporting the Who. It's all good. He icon award. I mean, you know, he was a legend. Now he's an icon. <laughs> It's right. fantastic. Right, listen, we're going to talk a little bit about the blockheads, if that's okay. I've got to ask you about um, Ian Jury. What were your first impressions of Ian Jury, Norm? <laughs> well, the first day I met him, I remember we were sitting at a table and he's talking to me and I had to say to him, I said, is your head really big for your body? Because he had this huge head and this little tiny body. And I was like, something's not right here. And I, I couldn't work it out. I didn't know he was uh, a raspberry. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, a cripple. That's a, uh, sorry, that's Cockney slang. Raspberry ripple, cripple. We used to call him the raspberry. Okay. It's a little thing we do down here I'm in London. Anyhow, uh, yeah, and I said to him, uh, look, look, uh, yeah, yeah. before we go any further, is your head too big for your body or what? Because you've got a fucking huge head. And this little time, and he went, yeah, I've got polio. And he just took his shirt off and he went, look, and he showed me his left-hand side and it was all withered. And I went, oh, right, I get it now. Okay, fine. But, yeah, what an amazing guy. Yeah, and, and we got on, like, you know, it was like, and the lyrics, the first lyrics I saw, one of the first pieces of paper, he goes, yeah, I've got all these songs, I'll need some music, you know. So I said, okay, yeah. And he showed me this lyric, and it was Billy Ricky Dicky. Mm. And, it, you know, and it was like, good evening, I'm from Essex, in case you couldn't tell. And I was like, I've never seen lyrics like this before. You know, this was something else. The second lyric he showed me was Clever Trevor. And I'm like, again, I've never seen lyrics like this before. This, it, they totally, but I, I, I think somewhere inside me, I thought this guy is either a genius or he's a complete idiot. Yeah, but I thought, no, this guy's a genius. He's got to be because I mean, lyrics like that I've never seen, and they were so good. They made me laugh. I was like, whoa, these are amazing. And he was just saying them, you know, like uh, in a in a time. 
he, he, his time was fours, you know, he'd just go one, two, three. He'd be like that just because I ain't never read, no, nothing worth having ever, ever. You know, he'd be like that all the time. So every lyric was like that, always on that beat, you know, that kind of metronome. And he was, to me, he was like, man, this guy's a poet. And and his poems are like stuff I've never heard before. The lyrics were so good. I just knew he's a genius. This guy is fucking great, you know? And it was brilliant. Now, I've heard all sorts of stories. Clear this up for us. It's, a lot of people say that in his flat, there was papers everywhere full of lyrics. Is that true? Is that true? Very true. You go around to his flat and there'd be big sheets of paper. He was an artist as well. A great painter. I don't know if you've seen Yeah, I've, I've heard all about this, I His artwork was phenomenal. But, you know, I mean, he studied with Peter Blake and, man, his paintings. We had an exhibition just last year of all his artwork and Ian kind of hid all his artwork when he became a rock star because he didn't want, he was embarrassed, I think, by it. But, man, I'm not joking. When you look at his stuff, it's brilliant artwork as well. He was an amazing painter. And he had these sheets of paper, huge sheets all over the flat, lying around. And you could, and, and you know, some of them were screwed up and thrown away. And you could pick them up and open them up and go, man, this is amazing. And he go, yeah, but I want something better. Look at this one, you know. It was like that. You go around his place, yeah, there was hundreds of pieces of paper all over the place. With, Ian was the kind of guy that if he heard something or someone said something or He's always writing it down. He, oh, I love that. I'll use that. I'll keep that. I'll remember that. And his lyrics were just something else. Yeah. Yeah, it is, that's very true. His flat was full of paper with writing on it. You could pick something up and it'd be like, it would just make you laugh or it would make you go, whoa, this is amazing. What is this? And he'd go, ah, I threw that one away. I've got a better one. And all this, it was forever like that, yeah. Now, a lot of people have been emailing and texting in questions, okay? Um, Greg Kane from the band Hue and Cry, you know Hue and Cry, yeah? Yeah, I remember that name, yeah, Hue and Cry, they had some hit records, yeah. Yeah, Greg. Two singers, yeah. That's right, aye, the, the Kane brothers. Scottish band, yeah. Yeah, from round, well, from about five minutes up the road from where I am right now. some good hits, yeah, soulful kind of stuff. Greg wants to know, how did you enjoy working with Chaz and the Blockheads, especially on Rhythm Stick? Such an iconic bass line, but very um, busy. Was there ever a discussion in the studio when it was recording, if it was too busy at all? Did that ever come course, up? Yeah, 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 of course. I've, always, I've told the story before, but I have to admit, if look, there was bass before Jacko and bass after Jacko. Okay, everybody knows, even the great bass players know that now, and they admit it. You know, I mean, I'm talking about all the great bass players before Jacko, and there's hundreds of them, let's be honest. But Jacko came along, and he kind of opened the door. He opened the door to let bass players know, and me included, that that instrument we're holding wasn't just a bass. It was an orchestra. You know, like, most bass players just play the roots, and, you know, play the root notes and do the straightforward bass lines. Jacko kind of showed everyone that you can do that as well as you can play the chords, you can play the melody, you can play the lot, because you've got everything there. I mean, when I hear now a piano player that's playing everything, right, and it's like, oh, that's beautiful, I can play all that now, 
I know how to do it. it. Well, it's always been there. I just never thought of doing it on a bass. But when you do it to a bass, it's it becomes something. Yeah, and, and every great bass player in the world knows there was bass before Jacko and bass after Jacko because Jacko came along and he was like a god that just showed everyone this is what we can do on this instrument. And bass players hadn't really pursued that or looked into it that far. We were still playing roots and stuff. So I went in 1978, I went and saw Weather Report at Hammersmith Odeon. I'd never seen Jacko in my life. I was down the front of the stage. I mean, it totally blew my mind. I, it was like watching, I, the only way I can describe it, it was like, um, it was like for guitarists seeing Hendrix. You know, I mean, there was never a guitarist like Jimi Hendrix, and there never will be for a long time. And even when Eric Clapton saw Hendrix, it was like, whoa, what's going on? You know what I mean? And it was like that when I saw Jacko. It was like, wow, that guy blew, he blew my mind totally. It was, and I'll tell you, you can see, hear it. You can hear it on the um, 8, 8.30 album. It's a live album, Weather Report made, and it's that tour. They recorded most of it in Europe and a couple of the tracks in London. But it was that tour I saw them on. They played that set, and it, it's got everything. It's, it's the four-piece, Wayne Shorter, Joe Zawinul, uh Peter Erskine on drums, and Jacko on bass. And it was just a four-piece, and they were absolutely unbelievable. And when Jacko did his solo bit as well. It was like, I'd never seen anything like it. So, two days after that concert, I mean, well, after that concert, I went home and I was like, ah, my head was in, you know, I couldn't stop thinking 16s all the time, you know, because Jacko doubled up everything. And, he, and I was like, well, I want to do that. I want to do it. So, and I got two days after, I got a phone call from Ian. He was down in Rolvenden with Chaz, and they'd just written this song called Rhythm Stick, you know. And he said, Norm, I've got this great song. We need you and Charlie come down and, you know, lay a rhythm track on it. So we said, OK. So me and Charlie went down there. And I couldn't stop thinking of 16s. So Chaz is playing me the song, and I'm listening to it, and I'm hitting the roots, and I'm thinking, OK. But then, you know, I couldn't resist going doubling it up because I suddenly started thinking. And yes, you're, you're perfectly right. Chaz said, mm, I like it, normally. it might be a bit too busy. And I said, no, no, don't tell me that. I said, I can't, I'm not going to change it. I said, because busy's good. Jacko's busy and it works. I said, we've got to do it. And the more they heard it, the more they started to like it. And then eventually Chaz went, Norm is fucking great. I love it. But it was, it was pure. I, I always tell everyone this. They all say to me, oh, how did you come up with Rhythm Stick? But you know what? It, to me, it's just me trying to be Jacko. You know? And it's like, ah, it's so, you know, obvious. But I had to do 16s on it, you know? Because, I mean, the song... Like I say, Ian's rhythm was one, two, three, four. And so Chaz had like, you know, da, 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 
Da, da, da. Write the chords. And then he had a, a chop that he liked, which was on the keyboard. So I'm listening to it, and I was like kind of doing, you know, I was going like, like you know, uh, But I'm thinking, now nah, I'm bored. That's boring me. If Jacko was thinking, like, you know? So I started thinking, well, and, and I just had to do it. And they were like, oh, you're being a bit busy. But I said, nah, no, listen to it. It'll, it'll work, it'll work. And eventually they all loved it. And that's what happened, you know, basically. But I always tell people, it's, Pure Jacko, me trying to be Jacko. At, at, you know, I was 26 when that happened, and I was a, I look, a boy at a bad age. <laughs> you know what I mean? Boys at a bad age, and you just want to be like your heroes. And and Jacko was my hero at that time. So I said, right, I've got to do what Jacko would do. And and but you know what? It's worked ever since for the rest of my life because I mean. If you put yourself in that mode of a, as a bass player or as any instrumentalist or as any musician, just try and be like your heroes and, and try and play like you, the greatest players you know. And whether you can do it or not, it doesn't matter because you create something that becomes your own. That's what happened to me, really. I mean, I, I'm just a, a, a cheap impersonation of Jacko, in my opinion, <laughs> you know. Hey, Norman, you're going you're gonna to absolutely love this. Guess who I was interviewing last night? You mentioned his name a minute ago. Peter Erskine, right? Oh, you spoke to Pete. Aye, I spoke to him last Whoa. night, and he told me a story about Jacko. I'll share it with you now, right? He said that, um, that Jacko completely changed his outlook and everything. Before a, before a gig... Now, he hadn't played with Jacko before, so, so, so Pretorius was, was a way to see him play, right? And so before the gig, they're sitting, at, they're sitting at the bar. Erskine needs to go on stage to do part two of the set. Jacko says to him, listen, have fun, right? And Peter Erskine just said, he just said that was a, the only time anybody has, had ever said that to him at that point. Not like best of luck, nothing like that, which we all get. Yeah, yeah. But he just said, you know, Admit, I say that to my band when I go, I just, guys, let's just go on and have some fun. Right. Forget everything. Just have fun. And they love it because I've got some of the best players. I've got an Israeli guy on drums called Azaf Circus, and he is one of the top. He's in the top ten of the world drummers. Right. I mean, the day, I, I can't believe this. I rang him up. I had two days to make my album. Right. Well, <laughs> okay. I wanted to do my album with Philip Bagnall, me and lad, when, when we decided to go ahead and make more tracks, you know. I said, okay, I want to use Philip Bagnall because I love East Coast Studios. I've worked there before with him on Chaz's stuff. And Philip built the studio. He's a, he's a boffin. He's got an amazing pair of ears. He's done so many albums. He's produced and mixed so many albums, really, name bands, Kasabi, all the modern bands as well. He's still doing them. But... I said, I've got to use Philip and the studio. So we, so I rang Philip, and Philip wanted to be part of my, he said, Norm, I want to be part of your thing, whatever you're doing. And I said, yeah, but his studio's very expensive, right? So I said, well, if you get any free time, let me know. You know, and he said, no problem. He rang me up on a Friday, and he said to me, 
Funnily enough, Kasabian had booked the week, Monday to Friday, the next week, but they weren't coming into Wednesday. So did I want the Monday and Tuesday? So I said, yes, definitely, I'll have it. So I rang Gilad and I said, look, we've got Monday and Tuesday in the studio with Philip. Let's do it. Who can we get? So we got Frank, my keyboard player, Frank Harrison, amazing keyboard player, Gilad, and Azaf. I rang Azaf up because he's a, the best drummer I know. And I said, look, I need you for my... And he really wanted to play on my album, he told me. So he said, but he was in Germany. And he was doing a session in Germany. I said, oh, shit. He goes, no, 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 but what, what days have you got? I said, I've got Monday and Tuesday. He said, I can do Monday. I'll fly back Sunday night, but I'll have to get back for Tuesday. I'll have to leave Tuesday morning. So I said, okay, one day will be fine. And I got Dylan to do the second day, who plays with the Blockheads and Wilco. So Azaf came in. He flew in Sunday night. He came down the studio Monday morning. And we spent one day, I did six tracks, I think, with Azaf that day and the other four. Basically, my album was recorded in two days. But I said to Azaf, who were you sessioning with in Germany that he was going back to? Jeff Berlin. And what? I'm like, ah, you left Jeff Berlin session to come to my, he goes, yeah, I want to be on your album too. I was like, wow, you Blowing my, you know, doing my head in. Brilliant. Yeah, but that's, yeah, yeah that's the class he's in. My drummer. <laughs> unbelievable. I can't wait to hear this guy play. Unbelievable. He's unbelievable. He's one of the best drummers in the world, seriously. As have Circus. He's an amazing drummer. I'll need to check him out. Gary John Kane, who plays bass for the Proclaimers. You know the Proclaimers, right? In fact, yeah, I know the guys. I rang them up once from a gig. With, uh, Reckless Eric was with us. They were playing Reckless's song, so I rang Eric and said, Eric, listen, and he was chatting to him and stuff. I know the guys, yeah, yeah they're lovely guys. G Gary John Kane, is, he's, he's, doing the, he's doing a little bit of, he's going to feature in this podcast as well, so he's got a couple of stories about when he met you, so when you listen in, you'll love it. Oh, now, wicked. Now, he said, out with the Blockheads, what's uh, your favourite tracks that you played on? Um... Yeah, generally, what's the favourite tracks that you played on? And then he's oh, wow. also delighted the news of Wilco as well. So, um... I love, I mean, I, I love everything. You know, the Blockheads, what I love about the Blockheads is is our musical variety, the variety of music we play. It was Ian's fault, really, because Ian was like our ringmaster. You know, we were like, we were good musicians, great. Um, Ian, you know, it, back in the 70s when we formed, mid-70s, there was this thing of like being a musician was kind of boring because we used to call them shoe starers, you know, guys that could really play, but they're just standing there looking at their shoes while they're playing, you know, and, and it kind of didn't do anything for you live unless you were a musician and you got off on the playing. There wasn't anything coming across, you know, and um, Ian found a bunch of shoe stairs, basically. But being the showman that he was and and the kind of ring... I always saw Ian as a ringmaster. Like, if we were a circus and he was the ringmaster and he would crack the whip and he'd tell us what... You know, it didn't matter what kind of music we played with Ian. And that was the beauty of it because 
nobody could pigeonhole us. You know, there was like reggae bands, there was punk bands, there was rock bands, there was this band. But the Blockheads kind of did a bit of everything. And we got away with it because of Ian. You see, it was his lyrics and his showmanship and his personality and everything that kind of knitted that together. And it enabled us as musicians, which we loved, to be able to play any kind of music if the song required it. You know, it was like, okay, we can be jazzy and we can really be out there and be jazz. Or we could be rock or we could be funk or we could be this. And without feeling we had to be in a certain bag, whereas bands at that time felt they had to be in a certain kind of bag to, you know, otherwise people couldn't define. We got away without being defined, but it was Ian's overlapping thing that did it, you know, which was one of my best friends said to me when he first heard New Boots and Panties, he put it on. And he said, wake up and make love with me. He started it, okay? He said, and he's heard this track coming. He said, it's funky. And he thought, whoa, this is funky, great. And he was expecting like a, a really good soul singer or Randy Crawford or some beautiful soul voice. And suddenly it was like, I can't wait in a holy morning. And he was like, whoa, what's happening here? But, but as it went on, he said, it just made him go, whoa, this is like something else. And I think that was the magic with Ian and the Blockheads. We were a band that could play any kind of music we wanted to without feeling <clears throat> we had to be in a certain, you know, groove or, or, or bracket. And being good musicians, we could play any kind of music. And we enjoyed that, but we had this guy that would bring it all together and make it like one thing, you know, and, and that was perfect. That was what worked. Hey, did, um, was Ian Jury quite pally with Alex Harvey? Do you remember at all? With who? Alex Harvey. Do you remember him? Yes. I met Alex. I met Alex. He came to Hammersmith one, one time to see us, and I was talking to him and Ian. We were all talking. Yeah, Ian loved Alex Harvey, and we all did. I loved Alex Harvey. I, know, I knew the band. They were fantastic. I mean, they were so ahead of their time. Let's be honest. I mean, Alex was doing, like, a similar thing to Ian and stuff, very ahead of their time. Alex was something else, man. Amazing guy. You only got to see their stuff now when they show it on old grey whistle test, old things. And it's it's like, wow, amazing, amazing for his, for that time. Nothing around like it. And he was, I saw him many times live. I knew the band. I knew all of them. My brother, in fact, played with the keyboard player and stuff. And my brother bought Clem's, Gibson off him and stuff. So yeah, we. I knew the band. I loved Alex Harvey, sensational Alex Harvey band. They were they were streets ahead of what was around at the time. And but you know, it, nobody really got it. There was a lot of people that didn't get it, but we got it. Ian got it. Ian loved Alex. Yeah, yeah. He was I good sh- friends with. I, I, every time you, you, you saw Alex, they were always getting drunk together and stuff. Yeah, it was always good times. Yeah. I'm glad. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you've got a higher opinion of that band. I've always felt that the Alex Harvey was the kind of Scottish version of Ian Jury. I've always felt like exactly. That's good but they were the, exactly. They were so ahead of their time. Really, Alex was amazing. Right, his, his songs were fantastic. I mean, come on, you know, the lyrics were something else. Come on, it was like Ian. Same thing. If I'd have met Alex 
you know, I would have had the same feeling as I had. And that's why I was saying to you about Ian when I saw his look. I just thought, this guy is something else. Because nobody was writing songs about real things like that. Everyone, everyone was still writing, you know, I love you, baby, Moody, June, and all that kind of crap. And it was all, you know, suddenly there was these guys that were saying, what's going on? And Alex was pouring out his life, you know, and what he'd been through and what he saw. And it was like, yes, I want to see that, you know. It's real. It was real. Yeah, no, great, man. Now, who would you like to work with that you've not had a chance to yet? Ah, oh, I've been asked this before. Oh, I don't know. There's so many, I suppose. Do you know what? I suppose, yeah, now at my, I'm an old man now. So I, I the kind of people I, I, I wish I could work with is like top, most of them are dead, I suppose, now when I think about it. But, but uh, I don't know. I've worked with pretty much a lot of people and I don't, I don't, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that I haven't worked with that I want to work with. I'd have to listen to a lot of new artists and stuff. I heard the other day one of my girls played to me uh, um, uh, Mad About That Bass by Megan yeah, Trainor, yeah. right? a pop song. But I watched the video and I loved the song and I thought, well, I'd like to work with her. I could work with her. <laughs> but that's just me being crazy. But no, I, I, I don't know. I've worked with so many people. I mean, I got the opportunity to work with Nick Cave. I got the opportunity. Ah, I toured with Nick. I went to Italy, Vienna and uh, uh, Iceland, toured with him on his solo tours and stuff. And it was fantastic. I love working with great songwriters, great lyric writers or all great musicians and, you know, I, I, I work with anyone. Wilco calls me the mercenary of the bass because I've played on nearly everyone's right. There's stuff I don't tell people. I, I was on In the Kitchen at parties, uh, Stop the Cavalry, all these pop songs. I didn't tell anyone about all this until it all came out later, you know. And like, oh, okay, yeah, that was me. Okay, But, you know... But I don't care now. I just think, wow, what a you know, it's great to be totally across the board and work with everyone. I love music. You know, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. And basically, if it's good, I'll work with it. You know, that's how I look at it. Pretty much. Play, playing is such a joy. Come on. I mean, to make a living, I'm 63, and I'm still making a living out of playing this bass, and I've done it since I was 14. You know, uh, you know, I'm like, I don't believe this. I've never had a job. This is my job. And I love it. How many people can say they love their job? You know, most people I know, they moan about it. And I get paid. And I've traveled the world. I, I've done 36 tours with Wilco in Japan. It's huge out there. We, we went there since 1984, every year nearly. And... and and the blockheads have done for to I wouldn't have been able to, you know, go to these countries and tour or, or visit or whatever. But I get taken there. We tour, we play, and we get paid. We get looked after. We get paid as well. Uh, well and, and that's my job. That's like, ah, uh, this is like unbelievable. I get paid to do something I love. Scott, you know. When you get paid to do something you love, it's not a job. It's a bonus. This is like, I'm, I'm loving this, and I'm going to get a wedge after. Ah, 
How uh, crazy is that? Listen, as musicians, don't we don't tell any of this, but we're getting away with murder, so it's all exactly. good, you know. Exactly, you know, mate, Lizette sent me a, one of my Mexican girls sent me a, a sticker from the back of the car, and it says, like most people, you're following a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> On the back of the car, like most people, you're following a bass player. Just like every other bass player that we have on, we always ask them what they think of Carol Kay. What are your thoughts on oh, Carol? Oh, Carol Kay is one of... I mean, come on, she's one of the best. I, I listened to her from when I was a boy, you know, learning. And yeah, when I found out Jameson, Carol Kay, all those people, I was like, ah. Oh. And she was so beautiful. Uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing the first time I saw her, she was like a 32-year-old housewife sitting in the studio playing on Mission Impossible or something, you know, don't, 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 don't. And I was like, wow, this woman, I, I, I was in love. I was in love with Carol Kay for, you know. And, yeah, brilliant. I love, I, I noticed, I saw the list you sent. You, I met Larry Graham as well. You, you interviewed Larry. Yeah, yeah. Man, I met Larry, and he was amazing, because I got to, to, he was doing a, a gig at the Coco in Camden Town, and I went along, and I know the Coco, they know me. The stage manager got me, and he said, do you want to meet Larry? I said, of course I want to meet Larry. He's one of my gods. So he took me backstage to meet Larry, and he introduced me to Larry, and I'm like, ah, I'm a, I'm a big fan, you know. And he sells Larry, um, Norman plays bass as well. He's very famous in England. So Larry goes, oh, wow, and he's shaking my hand. And then he says to Larry, you remember that record hit me with your rhythm stick? And Larry goes, I know that song. He goes, that's a great bass line. And, he's fun. and I'm like, whoa, Larry Graham's telling me it's a great bass line. And he shook my hand. He went, I didn't know you played that. And I was like, uh. I'm, I, when I meet my heroes, I become a fan. I'm like a little kid, you know. It's like, that's <laughs> terrible. I, I become like, ah, I don't know what to say. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do then. I'm going to, I'm going to send a YouTube clip of, of your bass lines to Carol Kay. And then oh, oh. I'm, no, I'm, don't, don't embarrass me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, this has been absolutely brilliant, Norman. You have to do us a big favour. You have to play us out with some funky bass. Do you mind? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, what do you want? What do you want? Oh, what do we want? I don't know. What do you want to play? <laughs> it's because we're talking about Larry Graham, that's why. Yeah, I know. You only have to mention Larry and it's like, you know, all that kind of shit. But I'm, I, I stopped slapping a long time ago. I just like finger I like playing stuff like Jacko, you know. Um, the... Oh, I love melody. I love beautiful songs like... Uh, Lovely.
Lovely. I love those sort of things. I did my foolish eye. That's a beautiful ending to the interview, Norman. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for playing bass, and I will see you when you're up in Scotland. Lovely, it's all you, Scott. I really enjoyed it. Great. Back right now with my main man, Gary John Kane. The third, the third Kane brother. Was there only three of us? So there is. That's right. Aye. By my fast math, there's three of you. Pleasure there chatting to Mr. Norman Watt-Roy, but you've met him. You've went one better. I had that brilliant moment on stage, one of your heroes is standing side stage, but I didn't know it was until halfway through. Now, it's a quick story, I'll try and make it quick because people get bored. Summer Days is a festival in Leicester, it's just, and, and they do it in the De Montfort Hall, the beautiful old hall, but the grounds, it's one of those classic English festivals. And the Blockheads were playing, and Phil Jupitus was the lead singer, right? So they were on after us, they were sort of headlining the Saturday night, we were on maybe 9 o'clock, they were 11 o'clock. And we did a version of, and on that album Life You, we did a version of Whole Wide World, which was on Stiff Records, sung by Reckless Eric, who's, if you look on Wikipedia, Norman Watt Roy's best pal, and he played all his records and all that. So we are doing this cover of Whole Wide World, and it's, we, we pump up a wee bit as the Proclaimers do, a wee bit punkier, and uh, I'm jumping about usual, we got the whole wide world, we... Crowd's going mad, and I turn around and normal what Roy's standing watching, he's going like that, with his hands up in there. Him and some of the band, and I was like, wow. no way, you know what I mean, no way. The thing got near the end of the gig, I was like, so we come off the stage, and it's the old, uh, the old council building changing rooms, and we got to the dressing room, and normal what Roy's sitting there with a couple of the blockheads, and Phil Jupiter's sitting. 
And I was just like, I, I was totally shocked. He looked cracking, you know what I mean? That, just that great look he's got, you know what I mean? That yep. kind of rock and roll look. And um, and he had his docks on. I had my docks on as well, too. He's a brown dog. He'd maybe black dad, brown docks on, just leaning each other, going, This is brown. I love you. He's like, Oh, great. Reckless Eric, I'll be so pleased that you've done this. So, um, literally six months later, every time we played a uh, whole wide world for about six gigs, Reckless Eric came up and sang it with us. So that was all connected through Norman Watt Roy seeing us playing it. Some of these. And now you're on a podcast with now him? Now I'm on a podcast with him, so it's kind of made my day now. That's, that's a good way to spend a Saturday <laughs> afternoon. Never mind football. It's scottcowie.com. This is the place to be, you know what I mean? Who cares about football and Sky Sports? This is the place to be, man. Exactly. And now that's reminded us, so we'll leave you now because we're now going to go and check the scores of today. <laughs> I'll be over three. I wish. So... Proclaimers, check out the guys have got an album coming out. Button up this single. I'm going to check it out. Really looking forward to seeing the band again. A great live act. And the website for button for button up is buttonuprecords.com. You You've got your own label, of course. It's all good. It's all good. That's very good. Eh? We've still got that album that's sitting there. That great album. The great album. Yeah, is that was called the great album. The great album. <laughs> you forgot the name of it. Toy Tin Soldier. The oh, Toy Tin Soldier. The self-named title album. Yes. Funny to actually say that. Joe Gallagher came out for a pint with me about two weeks ago. Right. In fact, he wasn't drinking, I'll tell a lie, he wasn't. He drove over just to watch some football game. And he seems to be, he seems to want to go out and write songs again, so that'd be good. So there you have it, but ladies and gentlemen. He broke his heart. He broke our hearts, Scott, so... Well, this is the thing. That I was a like, good band, man. That was a good for, band. For anybody that doesn't know what we're talking about, which is all of you, uh, we... <laughs> Near the week. Me and Gary John are in a band. We're in a band. Still are in a band. I don't, we never, still in that band. We, we really, yeah. Toy Tin Soldier. And it was the only band that I think I've ever been in where we got together and as soon as we played, we'd never really needed to rehearse because we all, we just clicked ah, all the time. Good, good, good musicians and big Greg Barnes. And, um, in fact, I met Paul, speaking of Greg Barnes, I met Paul... Mosley. Mosley, the guy that produced it and played the guitar mm-hmm. in Glasgow, a gig. Right. Lovely big guy. I think this is in the stars. I feel a reunion. Well, it might be a bit afraid of that one, but we'll <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out, but I will see. Well, in that case, then, I'd just like My to announce everybody. My fees are too high these days, man. I've, 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 not, I've not left the band. I've just sacked every single member. What do you think of that? I'm going solo. I just, just go toy. I'll go tin. Somebody else can go solo. Yeah, tin. exactly. Right. But in fact, we should do that thing that the Bay City Rollers done. I'll be, the, I'll be like... The, Scott Coy's soldiers. The, the, the complete toy tin soldiers. Oh, you've done that before. Well, I think so, yeah. But it bought me this flat, so it's all good. I imagine. Ladies and gentlemen, absolute pleasure. Norman Watt Roy, my pal Mike Smith, and my pal Gary John Kane on the one podcast. ScottKelly.com, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud. You know what to do. Subscribe so you get this thing for free each and every week on your iPhone, your iPad, whatever it may be. ScottKelly.com. We will see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>